AI workloads. I could do that too. Okay, good. Let's go live. And we're live on that note, talking about the future, talking about philosophy in the Bay Area and talking about things that probably aren't that related. Welcome to live stream number 135. It was 134 live streams ago that this wonderful human, uh, Patrick McFadden, was with us. Gave the very first live stream in the data on Kubernetes community was about is Kubernetes even ready for data? I think that has been well answered uh, throughout the course of the DOK community's history. Patrick, how are you? Hi, Bart. You just totally sprung that on me. What was that all about, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, you built, you know, you, you, you know, you, you reap what you sow and you've been with us since the very beginning and you've seen a lot of things happen. You're currently writing a book. You have a nice new Zoom background as well. One team. I like that. Um, yeah, also, this is, this is engineering, uh, data stacks, uh, by the way, we're hiring, um, but my, yeah, this is a, yeah, this is our, in, our engineering team. We do these, uh, these gatherings every once in a while. And, and it's this one team thing. I should have worn my one team shirt, but I'm wearing my Cassandra shirt. So cool shirt. Yeah, I dig it. I'm a fan. And so Patrick, you know, you've really seen, uh, you know, it's, it's no, it's no exaggeration. You really have seen the ins and outs, the, the ups and downs strikes and gutters of the data on Kubernetes community. So just really quickly in terms of, you know, how things started initially and where we're at now, can you just give, you know, your thoughts briefly about, you know, the things that we've seen, the things that we've done, the next steps that are going to be taken, just kind of give us a summary about that. So yeah, that was like when, how things are, how things started, how things are. <laughs> you were you were there, man. You were there. That was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it from, from a standpoint of staple workloads, um, you know, we, we all started out with this perceived group perception. That's, that's two perceives, but perceived group perception that stateful workloads in, in Kubernetes are hard and they're impossible or we shouldn't do that. But, you know, then I, I certainly had heard plenty of that. But what's really interesting to me is, is like the more, the more you ask about it, the more you hear that everybody's, well, we're kind of doing it. Oh, go on. And you know, the DOK survey that we did, um, <laughs> like surfaced that big time. And what we found out, and this is really cool, is that people were keeping that a secret because it was turning into a superpower and running staple workloads like a database on Kubernetes um, was as how they're moving faster. And the, the more they push into Kubernetes, the faster they were going. And you know, speed is the key. Um, the only, the most important thing you can do is how, or the most important thing at all in app building is how fast can you put it in production? Yep. Um, and I still have yet to have anyone argue with me. I'm waiting for that. But um, if they do, remind them of the old boxing adage that power thrills, but speed kills. Yeah, it is as slow as fast, right? No, it isn't. No, it's speed, no. speed <laughs> is it. Yeah, no, get that app out in production. So, yeah, and you know, I've spent probably the past year exploring beyond beyond just the database because I think the database is what I'm finding is is table stakes. Um, you should table stakes for those who don't know that that turn of phrase is, you know, this is the basic, this is the default. Um, so you're going to raise the stakes. Well, and open the door a little bit. I think we have a <laughs> we have a, a yet another perception that needs to be crushed <laughs> because again, it's I I know that it's it's being done at scale and it's a secret it's a secret superpower. You know, it's in the volcano. 
<laughs> folks there are gonna be uh spoiler alert there are gonna be a lot of metaphors used today so if you're not sure about anything you could definitely ask that being said though this was also in the report too about you know the stack originated or you know in terms of what we talked about the community database and storage now moving beyond from that and this also came up in in, in the report about looking at analytics streaming machine learning ai different use cases that are coming in and these are things that we're interested in exploring further. We had a couple of talks in, in Valencia about that as well. That being said though, Patrick, take it away folks as usual. If you've got questions that you want answered, either put them in the YouTube chat. Patrick's also very accessible on our Slack. So you can always reach out and get in there. Um, but I, I wanna jump right into this. So Patrick, go for it. Go for it. All right, I'm gonna do the advanced sharing standby. Okay. Yeah, so I can see what I did there. Very advanced, hold on. All right. Yep. Got size it. my screen. Yeah, nice. this is the awkward changing of the screen. Okay. This is, uh, by the way, if anyone wants to learn how to do presenter mode using a Zoom, I will be happy to tell you in, in the Slack. So go to DOK Slack and I'll tell you all about it. So good morning, good afternoon, and good day, wherever you are in the world. And whenever you watch this, it may be late at night and you're watching your iPad and you're like, I just want to learn something. Great. Um, I'm happy you're here. My name is Patrick McFadden. I work at Datastacks, but uh, you may know me through a lot of other ways and mostly <laughs> through things like this where I do talks. Um, I absolutely love data. I've been doing data for a long, long time since I did data before data was cool. Actually, data has always been cool, but um, I've done I've done a lot of O'Reilly things and I miss Strata. At the Strata conference um, used to do that every year, you know, more than once a year because there used to be a lot of Stratas. But um, I've done content on um, a lot on Cassandra. Like I said, I'm wearing my Cassandra shirt today. Um, you may know me from a lot of Cassandra content that I've developed over the years, but I do other kinds of data work. Um, I, I have a pretty popular series. It's really old. Don't go watch it. But about running uh, time series, using time series um, problems or solving time series problems with Apache software. So Kafka, Spark, Cassandra. And um, right now my, uh, my co-writer, Jeff, Jeff and I are writing a book called Managing Cloud-Native Data on Kubernetes. You can go get a pre-read early release. Uh, Portworks has that available on their website. And thanks. I will share the link. Yeah, I'll share the link. Share, share links, yeah. But um, you know, this is what we what we're trying to. Um, this is actually a product. This talk is a product of this journey we're going through. And as Bart talked about, it's like you know, we've we we've been pretty actively involved in running a database on Kubernetes, and um, and I think that's if you look at the DOK website, you see a lot of it's usually storage or database discussions. So it's pretty low level. Um, we're not we're not yet getting into this topic, and so why why is this important? Well, when we build applications in thinking in terms of applications, we're, this is a this is the functional block diagram. Like we want some data to go in, and then we want some data going out. All right. Well, this is a simple version. Like one one data goes in, we store it, and you know that's called a database, and then we get temperature out or you know did a piece of data out and if you're just running your database on kubernetes this is what you're going to get okay but you don't want that <laughs> you want more you want to put a piece of data in and get different kinds of data out and that turns it turns this block into a function and not just a storage medium and thinking in kubernetes thinking of kubernetes is not just a 
place to store data or serve data. Um, this is this is it. It's like now we're into this building. We're building apps. You know, the old school way where we we talk about like, hey, we do some whiteboarding and we say, hey, what do we need? What does this application need? We talk about scaling and um, and when we talk about deployment options, now everyone, you know, it's probably going to be in a cloud somewhere and probably going to be on Kubernetes. And um, those those questions and all those things turn into, you know, after this whiteboard is done into something like this, like, oh, here's our, here's what's going to support our application. And it has, you know, we have lines going all over the place and blocks that have different components in it. But if you notice, it's not just a database anymore. Um, there's Cassandra in the middle, a team. But we have other things going on, like Spark um, for doing analytics. Um, I'm using Ray for doing like model uh, model building for my like my AI work. Beast for feature serving. Um, I'm using Pulsar and Flink for real time analytics. So these are all likely components. Now there's a lot going on here. This is a pretty data driven application, am I right? But this isn't unheard of. When you're building applications, it's usually a team sport, and I'd like to think that you're not going to go and reinvent one of these components. The, we have some great components. You should use them, but it's about assembling. So when we bring Kubernetes into this, and this is where I'm going to try to mesh these two topics together, is, you know, we we have we have gone from having containers and thinking, running a, like a database in a container and have applied some magic to that. And now what we what we're building is these virtual data centers that ser that serve our functionality. So we have input and we have output and that what's built in that virtual data center. And I'm kind of testing this phrase out. You may have some comments on this, but um, when you think about building your application in Kubernetes, you want to build out all the components for that, that serve the needs. So when I input something, I get the right output. And this is a this is a developer-focused point of view. Developers, the end developer, maybe your front-end developer, maybe they're using React or something like that. They want data to be hassle-free and trade-off-free. So if you're an operator, an SRE, then this is your job. You need to build this. Architects, you need to build this. This is a um, <laughs> quote from the book. <laughs> this is one of my uh, database professors when I was uh, was an undergraduate at Cal Poly years ago. Um, uh, Dr. Sharika was amazing, but he used to say this all the time. We were um, I was in a class where we were building a database from scratch, and um, his thing was building in proper features so we could be lazy. And I love this quote, and it's in the book. Thank you, Dr. Sharika, wherever you are. Um, but how, what does that mean for us? <laughs> Bart, you love that, don't you? <laughs> I, I do. I'm a fan. <laughs> I wish I had fan. Dr. Sharika. <laughs> Better late than never. Yeah, Dr. Sharika was great. Although he was a really hard professor because if you weren't lazy enough, yeah, he, his tests were not lazy. <laughs> so what, do, I mean, we are trying to consume compute network and storage efficiently. And when we build these applications with all this complicated infrastructure, we're gonna be consuming a lot of it. So it's not just that we want to consume compute network of storage, we will. It's that we wanna do it efficiently, that we wanna do it in a cost-effective way because ultimately the arbitrage is cost. How much do we spend to run our application? If you had an infinite budget, then there's no problem. You can do whatever you want. but. Absolutely nobody has an infinite budget 
And you know what it's going to be like. As soon as you get your clout bill, people start asking questions because it's going to be big. And the type of things that we build when we build these data-driven applications, th these are not the cheap apps. These are the big ones. And so I would hope that you're doing this where you're like, okay, I'm going to have my complete application stack running in Kubernetes. But what you're doing is something more like this. And, you know, okay, I got my database and Kubernetes and I run all my microservices and there's, uh, I got my autoscaler set up and go team. Uh, what about everything else? Uh, we'll just run that outside. <laughs> so now you've got this really disconnected, complicated setup where you're running multiple architectures, multiple security profiles, multiple authentication schemes, multiple, multiple, multiple. Remember Dr. Shrika, let's, let's embrace our inner Dr. Shrika. This is not lazy. This is complicated and hard. So let's just work on this now. So let's move beyond that database, shall we? Let's go. <laughs> so I'm gonna talk about a couple of technologies here. And this is meant to be just a bit of an overview of the technologies, um, not a deep, deep, deep dive. Um, that, I think that'll be another talk for another day. I'd love to just take one of these technologies and really dig into it. Um, but what I'm gonna give you is some, some functional information, um, some things you probably didn't know about. And if you did know about it, then you're probably doing this as a secret superpower and you're not telling anyone. Um, but also just to give you the permission to go try this out. Uh, I think a lot of people um, don't think about a technology being done in a certain way and they just don't even think about it until somebody says, hey, you know, you should go try this. And then because we're all a bunch of engineers that love to do things that are cool, you'll go do it. So here's your opportunity. Let's start out with streaming with Apache Pulsar. Now, those of you who do not know what Apache Pulsar is, uh, Pulsar is a next generation streaming platform. Now I've done a lot of talks on Kafka. So Pulsar is like the next generation of Kafka. The way I describe it is, um, pull, uh, Kafka to Pulsar is like Hadoop to Spark. Like Kafka served a certain purpose when it was built. It was built before Kubernetes. Pulsar was built after that with like kind of some lessons learned in this next generation. Um, Pulsar is uh, has compatibility with Kafka if you need it, but it does things that Kafka does not do, such as PubSub. And um, it's turning out to be quite a beast when it comes to uh, just serving large-scale cloud-native streaming workloads. Um, the ecosystem is built, building around it. Um, and with its compatibility layers, it makes it easy to drop in. And the great thing about streaming, it has, uh, you can move, you can use two, you can move it around. Because a lot of times that data is pretty ephemeral. You're just pushing it from one point to the other and doing something with it on the way there. So it's an easy thing to try out. Um, so let's get into why, what, why, Pulsar and Kubernetes. Um, so like I mentioned, it's, it's a bit of a next generation system, but it has some components that are really built with cloud native in mind. And um, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but you know, that's cloud native, like how does it compute, you know, how does it work with like scaling and elasticity and uh, fault tolerance, you know, being self-healing. Um, those are all really important things to have in a tool that you're going to deploy in Kubernetes. And too many times we find older tools being bolted in and 
you know, we'll throw an operator at it and hope for the best. And, you know, yeah, I know I'm talking a little bit about Cassandra sometimes, but we've, you know, Cassandra was built with cloud native in mind for a lot of things, but then we had to add an operator. Spoiler alert, we're changing. The project has been moving quickly towards cloud native, a little more natively. And um, is that native cloud native? Hmm. Anyway. Um, native. Yeah, <laughs> native squared. <laughs> um, the, you know, the, this is, I think this is just, if you should be looking at all your products that you put in Kubernetes with cloud native TM. <laughs> and, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, for Pulsar, Kubernetes is one of the primary deployment methods. If you go into the docs, <clears throat> they want you to use Kubernetes and it's because of the way that it works. And in, in the project, we also have Helm and the operator is just part of the project. It's not like a separate project or a, a separate company or a separate organization. It's all entry. And so you can see the commitment to Kubernetes inside of the project itself. And then the biggest thing, and I think this is one of the reasons that I was really interested in it, is it, it does separate compute and storage. And that's a huge one because when you're scaling, those are two elements that really should scale independently in any kind of large data scale. Um, so let's look at how Pulsar works or look what makes it like this. Um, this is an ex this is a big example. This is a, uh, and I'm getting to introduce you to some of the terminology. Um, uh, and, and so this is where we get into like, how many clusters can I say now? <laughs> Not just native native, it's now clusters. Ugh, you know, we need new words. Um, well, luckily we'll start out with just the basics, which is an instance. A Pulsar instance is a is a domain, is a control domain. And a Pulsar instance can have multiple Pulsar, Pulsar clusters. And those Pulsar clusters can be, are typically in a different data center or a different Kubernetes cluster. They're, they're separated by some network. And so built into how Pulsar works is this, this idea of multi-data center um, or even multi-cloud replication. And that's that's a wonderful thing, especially if you love uptime. And so a Pulsar instance in the, in the control plane um, can have this concept of multi-DC. And inside of each, inside of each cluster, uh, it, it's broken into pieces. So for communicating with the Pulsar uh, instance or the Pulsar cluster and the instance itself, we have a proxy. And the proxy handles the communication between the producers, the client, and then the consumers, the, the client that pulls the topics or pulls data out of the topics. So in any streaming technology, you have a producer and a consumer, and the proxy is what handles the communication with the rest of the cluster. And then the, the proxy's job um, is to communicate with the broker. And the broker is kind of the key thing here. This is what makes Pulsar work for most separating your compute and storage. Brokers are stateless, and so is a proxy, by the way. And the stateless broker is meant to figure out, all right, here's my topic. Here's how I want to, this is what I want to do with it. And then it makes the choices on which bookies it would go to it. Now, bookies are the storage component for a Pulsar cluster. And what a cool name, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's like, if those of you who know what a, a bookie is and like gambling, it's not a good thing. I'm just going to um, say, I don't think, but this is, they're, re, they're reclaiming bookie. This is good. They're reclaiming the word bookie, yeah. Um, and it, a bookie in this case is uh, because it holds the ledger. 
Get it? See isn't that better, right? Very clever. <laughs> right, never mind. Yeah, yeah very clever. Yeah. <laughs> Naming's hard, okay? It <laughs> Gotten is. off by one error. <laughs> <laughs> so uh the bookies, the bookies are uh responsible for the storage component and making sure that data is replicated properly, that it is um that it is partitioned properly and interfaces directly with the storage mechanism behind it. So usually some sort of block storage. And uh, you know, so that you can have multiple bookies as well. And so this is where you get some scaling coming in here. Now, Zookeeper is in, also installed in here. And those of you who've seen any of my talks know I really hate Zookeeper with a passion because it's just, you know, it has a lot of problems sometimes. And it it is kind of a single point of failure. However, Zookeeper is a pretty important part of what Pulsar is right now. That is something that's changing. Uh, Zookeeper is getting removed. Um, as we speak, there's different ways to do this. And, and essentially what Zookeeper does is it's like the air traffic control. It's making sure that consensus and who's doing what is all centralized so that when we have stateless applications, it's storing the state to make sure that we have all the different, um, everything's coordinated properly. So this is a, a basic example of a, a Pulsar cluster, Pulsar instance, and this could run anywhere. This can run on your laptop. This can run on bare metal. It, this does not have any cloud nativeness to it other than the fact that the way that you deploy it. For Kubernetes though, um, what, what it does is it really opens up some great possibilities. So same diagram, but now Kubernetes-fied um, where we turn things into services, which is great for Kubernetes. So we have a broker service, a bookie service, a zookeeper service, a proxy service. Um, and those services are all talking to each other over an internal network. And so because they are services and they're discoverable, let's say that I need to scale something. Let's say I need to scale my, um, my, my brokers because brokers are the compute component of this. This is what takes in the client communication and manages the, the scale. Like if I need to do 10 million writes per second, I'm gonna need more brokers. Well, as we add brokers and what's not on this thing right now is a proxy, but as we add more brokers into the system because Kubernetes and through etcd and the Kubernetes control plane is able to coordinate those, you can link up the proxy now with the brokers automatically as you scale out. And let's say you need to scale down, Elastic, then that's doable as well. And because it's a service that you're just connecting to a domain name, not an IP address, and you're not having to change configuration, which is awesome. So applications and uh, consumers and producers that are connecting into uh, Pulsar from into a, like into a Pulsar instance running in Kubernetes, they will not know. All of a sudden you just have more capacity. And that, that's the kind of magic that we want to happen. It's not magic, it's computer science, but it sure seems like it. And the same goes true with the storage. If you just want to store a lot of data, then the bookies and the storage that they're attached to can grow elastically as well. And that you know that's all managed by Kubernetes. And since these are services, these are names, these are not IPs, that, that's one of the key success factors and really being successful with Kubernetes is just get rid of, forget IPs. IPs do not exist, use domain names. Um, so this deployment and the way we do this, and I, uh, this is where we get in a little more in deep dive, but just to touch on 
you do a deployment, it's a single YAML file, but that YAML file can be really complex or it can be tiny. <laughs> and it's just a matter of what you need. Um, and you could be very specific about, oh, I need five brokers and four bookies and here's all my PVCs. Or you can just start with a pretty light, you know, I don't need a proxy. I just want a straight broker. Um, you can get really specific in there. Uh, the warning that I'm going to throw out about Pulsar is, see all those pods and everything? This is not one container. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on here. And if you just use the default uh, deployment YAML, the, then, and on a laptop, your laptop will probably melt. Um, it is a lot of infrastructure to fire up. I mean, we're probably 15 different pods. So um, there is a there is a default for like uh, Minikube or something like that that you can run on your laptop. But really, this is I, this is where I, I fire up my Google Cloud instance and I just deploy to that because that's a lot easier. Um, it's going to be big, but you're not using Pulsar to you know manage your home recipe collection. Um, you're probably going to do something big with it. Moving on. So this is a tough one, Spark, uh, because, and the reason I say it's tough is because there's just a lot of, like there's some negative press on running any kind of ML or analytics workloads on Kubernetes just because people don't understand it. And the, probably the main reason is they're using defaults or they just don't understand that a modern version of Spark, i.e. like the last year, is way more adapted to working with Kubernetes. Um, so, why would you even do this? And I, I think this is uh, some people that did maybe think about, oh, Spark and Kubernetes should work well just because of the workloads that fit well. That is actually true. Um, they tend to be a little bursty. And that's where we get into like, you should never use a default, meaning whenever I do an analytics job, it may say, oh, I need 100 nodes right now. And that's going to happen right now. But that actually works really well in Kubernetes. Um, if you compared to something like Yarn, Yarn takes a while, a long time to spin up infrastructure. Kubernetes is much faster when it comes to creating pods just because of the, you know, the way that it works. And so those, those workloads tend to work really well in Kubernetes. Um, as of Spark 3.2 or 3.1, um, 3.2, Kubernetes is now a primary deployment method. And I don't think a lot of people know that. And you will after this, because I'm going to show you how to do it. And the other thing is that the ecosystem is really starting to grow around Spark and Kubernetes, and it needs to. Um, Spark alone is not going to solve this problem, just like anything else. You need storage, you need networking, and everyone needs to play along. The ecosystem around Spark is really catching up, and there's, there's a lot of work still being done. This is a great opportunity. We're on the bleeding edge, by the way. We're out here. We're on the edge. Um, there's a lot of work in Kubernetes that needs to get done still. Um, especially if you look at things like running batch jobs. Uh, Kubernetes, the idea of running batch jobs in Kubernetes wasn't really solid when it was designed. It was like, I need to back up my WordPress server every day. <laughs> that was the batch job it, with no other considerations. So these are things that are changing. So let's go into some of the deployment methods. So first is the Apache Spark native version. So this is built into Spark. And it assumes two things. You have a pre-built Kubernetes cluster and you have a pre-built app container. Um, so what does that mean? You're probably gonna have a cluster that is specifically built for running Spark jobs. And 
that's the assumption with this is that you know you're going to have a enough infrastructure to do whatever you need to do if you need to run 100 nodes 100 pods great go for it um and it doesn't have to be that way you can you can mix uh workloads of course um and then there's ways to do that in a minute i'll show you how to do that but that's kind of an assumption um and also the pre-built app container and that's an image that's a docker image um and that that is all your code wrapped you know your application code for spark wrapped up into a single um, container. And what's interesting is that there's actually in the Spark distribution, there's a, a Docker build file that you that you use that to build your native Spark image that will be deployed in Kubernetes. Uh, there's And you can build your own. You can get super, super detailed on it if you wanted to. Uh, but there is a default one out there that'll just take your jar file and run with it. So um, it's, this is, you know, there's work to be done here. This is not if you're in the Spark ecosystem and you're already using Spark, this should not be a big stretch. Um, you should already probably have these things, but I'm just letting you know if you're interested, this is a, these are the key things you need to know. Now, the Spark submit command, which is built into Kubernetes or as into Spark, is how we submit jobs into our Kubernetes cluster or our Spark cluster. Um, the change is that now the dash dash master tag in there. Um, it used to go to the Spark master node. Now it is connecting to the API server in Kubernetes. So when you put a K8S Kubernetes colon slash slash, it flips the mode around and it says, oh, I'm doing this in a Kubernetes cluster. Different mode completely. And the two key things here are pointing it to the API server, the internal IP, or I'm sorry, the external IP, and also the image that you need. And what it does is it's, it's going through this process that when you do Spark submit, it will start pushing things into the Kubernetes cluster. The first thing it does when you, when you send it to the API server is it starts up a pod called the Spark driver. So that's a big difference. And the Spark driver is kind of, I guess we call it, that's air traffic control as well. So that's the one, that's the one pod that will know what to do whenever you give it a Spark job to run. And the Spark driver's primary purpose is to make sure that you have enough nodes, enough pods de uh, deployed, which are called Spark executors. They're enough deployed to manage the job. And it works with the, the Kubernetes scheduler to get that done. And then, you, so you get a Spark executor and you get a bunch of, uh, that's what runs your custom container. Um, this is the warning. You invoke this, it will consume resources at a very fast pace. You've been warned. <laughs> now, the other option is to use the Kubernetes operator for Apache Spark. It's a lot of words. Uh, it is not a part of the, the Apache Spark project. It is actually hosted by Google, Google Cloud, which is uh, pretty cool. Its job, it, its purpose and job is mainly to uh, eliminate the need to use Spark submit and be a little more Kubernetes native. So this is creating a deployment YAML of kind Spark application. And inside of the YAML file, you can you can describe all the things that you want to run, like which image you want to run. Um, this is only a part of a YAML, but how many nodes you need to run, for instance. And a little difference here is that whenever you submit, you're using kubectl instead of Spark submit. When you submit that YAML file, it goes to the API server, which then has, because you've installed this operator, the operator is like, 
on it. And that will figure out, oh, I need a spark driver. So it will act like, from that point on, it'll act like spark submit. And, but it's, it's having you and letting you use a normal Kubernetes cluster and use YAML files and use Argo CD and those kind of things. Those will all work just out of the box. And that's pretty cool. So last little topic here is about schedulers. And we are now into the secret sauce portion of this discussion. Um, I'll bet you most people who, who are watching this have no idea that these exist. And the reason I say that is because every time I bring it up, people go, huh, that's a thing? Today you, are, today you are privileged to learn that these exist and they're really cool. But this is what I say, don't just do the defaults. You heard it here first, Bart. Actually, these are not a secret, but huh? That's a thing. You can do that. Yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> is that the best color man in the business for nothing? <laughs> All right. So your default scheduler, the scheduler is a key component of a Kubernetes cluster. It does all it does all the really hard work of creating the pods. And whenever you say uh, you you use kubectl to send your deployment YAML in. Like you submit this YAML that has a certain state that you desire. This kube scheduler's job is to say, I'm going to filter, score, and assign. And it's going to look at that and say, wait a minute, you said you needed five pods with these images and those don't exist. So then it goes out and looks at the infrastructure and other things like taints and uh, you know whatever you've done to make sure that you have some control over your Kubernetes cluster. So it follows the rules, but generally it just is yellow, just throws it over the hoop and they start creating pods. Um, there's no frills at all. It just doesn't. So with no frills, this is where you get into trouble with really advanced workloads like Kubernetes. Um, and you can, this is spoiler alert, this could be a talk about TensorFlow or anything else. Um, when you're dealing with advanced workloads like that, that have uh, a little more need in their, the way they schedule, then the default scheduler is not your dog. So there's two projects I'm gonna talk about. First is called Unicorn with a Y. That's an Apache project. Um, and Unicorn was originally built for, it was Yarn unified with Kubernetes. Get it? Uh, unicorn, all right, anyway. Um, oh man, moving that, is, on. that is hot. That is a meme in the making. I'm telling you, uh, naming things is hard, right? No. So Unicorn is, uh, is, a, is an alternative scheduler that was built for advanced workloads like Kubernetes. It was originally built for Kubernetes. Now it handles other things like TensorFlow. Um, but what, what it does is it's, there's a configuration file that's external, um, a Unicorn configuration file that does this really cool, like whenever you submit a job, it can match up things like it can do hierarchy, it assumes multi-tenancy. So maybe um, one department has more uh, or one department or one job code has a different priority than another. It can do bin packing, which means it can do efficient resourcing. It can do fairness scheduling so that it makes sure that not one job gets starved out, which is pretty common with the default scheduler. Um, tons of features. And it even is built to, uh, to intercept Spark Submit. So if you, if you install Unicorn and you use Spark Submit, uh, it will look at that and say, oh, I know what to do. And it will replace the scheduler. Now you can be specific and say, no, no, no. 
I want the scheduler to be unicorn and that's cool too. Um, but it's meant to bypass the, the basic scheduler. And then it does all these really cool things around your Kubernetes job. And this is, this is what, this is how to do it. You should be doing this. You should not be running your Spark jobs on the default scheduler. Now, a alternative is our uh, is Volcano, and another. Now, that's an awesome name. I like that. Um, and Volcano had was built with a little different thought in mind. It was made for general purpose, high performance computing workloads. So, anything you can think of that needs like some batching. Uh, including TensorFlow and Spark and, um, and the whole range of different uh, ML workloads. Um, there's even a plugin for like doing gene analysis. I mean, just think of like how you're going to do high performance computing with Kubernetes. That's what Volcano is built around. Um, but a lot of similarities. Uh, where they depart is that Volcano, when you do an install, it actually puts CRDs into your Kubernetes cluster for a job, a queue, and a pod group. And so the configuration is essentially built into the YAML file, your deployment YAML. And there is a there is an external, there is a configuration you can uh, set up in your kube config to get kind of granular with how your cluster works. Like, oh, these nodes are GPU nodes and these have like NUMA awareness and all these other things. Um, it is way more comprehensive for different types of workloads with Volcano, but, you have to call it specifically. So when you build out your job, that's one of the uh, CRDs, you have to say, I'm going to use a batch scheduler of Volcano. And similar to how Unicorn works, whenever you submit that job to the API server, it just ignores the, this kube scheduler and goes right over to a Volcano. And um, it does really cool things. And so you know, the bin packing topology awareness, um, like putting jobs close together. Let's say if you're trying to do storage affinity, it does that really well. Prioritizing like this job needs to run before this job, uh, dependency management, all of that. Um, if you've run any kind of bulk jobs, you know what I'm talking about here. Um, this is a crucial thing and things that the Kube schedule will never have. So those are two projects you should definitely check out. So let's wrap this up. What are your takeaways here? Well, first and foremost, and I love this, this is my, my bold statement. You can't say you're all, all in on cloud native if you aren't running every one of your workloads. You can't run like half of your workloads in a cloud native and the other half not cloud native. Um, you're not all in. And this is an opportunity for you to fix that. <laughs> um, and when I say work, to work with tools that work with you, um, I'm, I'm looking at, like what has native Kubernetes support thoughtful, thoughtfully put into it? Like I mentioned um, Spark now with the Kubernetes native, uh, well, they're putting in Kubernetes native things and they're saying, okay, we expect that you're gonna be doing this. We're going to work with you. Um, instead of just giving you the base, uh, base tool and you figure it out. Um, you know, that, and that's how it's been for a long time. Those days are coming to a close. Um, and a little more generally, it's this, this idea of the function machines. You know, you think about like, what's my input? What's my output? And let's build those. That's that's the data center. That's the deployment you're trying to put into Kubernetes. It's not just some microservices, stateless. It's not a stateful, maybe server. 
it's thinking in like holistically. You're architecting the end solution for the developers to use. And finally, and this is just what I was telling you, is just don't use defaults. Think think out of the box. <laughs> it's easy whenever you, you're getting started to use sane defaults, but I don't know of any system that really holds up to the same defaults once you get into your specific requirements. And with analytic workloads, especially if you use the defaults, you're going to get damaged. <laughs> um, it'll hurt a lot. So um, those are, that's, that's my talk. Um, I hopefully, you know, you can find me out on Twitter at Patrick McFadden on LinkedIn um, on DOK Slack. Come at me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Tell me easy to find. Yeah. Yeah. All in on all in on Kubernetes, all in on cloud native. Now, as usual, I think this is good. You know, I mean, it was over a year ago that you were pushing the envelope with explaining, you know, the difference between DBA and SRE, that's time to make the change. Um, you know, these sort of parad you know, paradigm shifts that sometimes for for different folks will cause some levels of uncertainty, but how you've laid it out here and particularly, you know, we know that bookies can have a positive connotation. And I dropped the links as well to you about Unicorn and Volcano. So if people want to check that out further, you also have people in strong agreement with you that Zookeeper needs to go. Um, friends don't let friends use Zookeeper. As you also said, friends don't let- It's a thing, them. you know, it's out there. I mean, I think the most, uh, we use Zookeeper because it was a base, it was a, like, if you do not have a consensus protocol, one will be provided for you. Um, but now- <laughs> as more projects are thinking through like what it actually means, they're replacing it. Like Kafka is replacing Zookeeper. Pulsar is replacing Zookeeper, yeah. One question that I did have, because you mentioned a little bit uh, in the talk, and this came up quite a bit at KubeCon, you know, now we're seeing all the reports and trends and posts about these are the most, you know, or the hottest topics and things like that. But, I, and I was actually talking to somebody else about this today, but we're talking about, you know, Kubernetes at the edge and what that's going to mean for the data on Kubernetes ecosystem. I know you touched on it a little bit, but what are things that we should, uh, that we should keep in mind? Yeah, Kubernetes, I mean, like for edge computing itself? Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's where I think multi, the multi-data center functionality for a lot of these things comes in. You can have a small data center of something on the edge with a larger data center somewhere else. Um, Pulsar does this really cool pub sub thing where it can pass data from one place to the other, which is really useful. Um, and it's, we're getting into this world of multi, multi cluster Kubernetes and there's projects that are helping that, you know, like Submariner is one of them. Um, and it, it's understanding how networking goes. Cause we've been really focused hard on storage, some on compute, mm. very little on networking. <laughs> and now we're shifting. <laughs> yep, trying to balance it out. You know, it's it, it yeah. frequently that one will be more imprecise than, than another. Um, but anyway, I just think it's something that that folks should have on the radar because it, it does seem to be of significant importance to a lot of people and was talked about a fair amount in this KubeCon. So we can imagine that the next one in Detroit will will have that uh, in mind as well too. So anyway, um, yeah. Well, projects like K3S are making this work. And that's precisely it. I was at an event in Holland and K3S was heavily featured because of, of the, of, you know, what it provides and, and the added value um, and, 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 and in particular with, uh, with edge cases in mind. Um, that being said, though, we are getting towards the end. So as, as you mentioned, Patrick, you're very easy to find in linked, on LinkedIn, Twitter and in our Slack. But before we let you go, we have a special guest who is uh, lurking in the background here. 
and I would ask him to turn on his, I would ask this person to turn on their camera. Hi, Bart. Hi, Patrick. This is our our luchador. luchador. So we like living on the edge as well, too. So, you know, Patrick, while you've been talking, um, apart from being very fashionable in this amazing Mexican wrestling mask, uh, our incredible. Yeah, I was going to say, are we going to have to wrestle? (laughs) I don't want to wrestle. Get ready for Detroit. <laughs> yes, it's going to get real. <laughs> it's going to get real. There's going to be a Royal Rumble. But anyway, Patrick, while you were talking, uh, oh, Alka, who is our, our amazing artist and amazing our amazing wrestler, wrestled his way through this incredible piece um, describing the, the different topics that were touched on. And you know, he did add a freshen up, so we, we couldn't didn't necessarily get everything in there. Um, but I think it was a nice, uh, a nice summary um, that we can have visually to, to take away with us. In terms of the different things that were that were talked about so yeah um, this is great i just love your art so much thank you thank you thank you oh good no i'm glad he, i'm glad he can hear because sometimes it's hard to hear with but, but yeah patrick always a pleasure uh looking forward to catching up in person and perhaps taking these topics a little bit further we were talking about this before we got started but i think there's definite interest in this we're going to be seeing this more and it's nice to see the stack building out because, like you said, if we just stay with database, you know, it can get a little bit tiresome. Uh, so seeing this build out into other areas regarding <laughs> analytics, Pulsar, et cetera, is very healthy. Oh, good. We're getting, we're getting photographic evidence of this, too. Um, that's important. So <laughs> thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Anka. Thank you, everybody, for joining today. Thank you. Let's- Patrick, I will be asking you as well too about the Zoom presenter mode. I know you got to run; you got something else right now. But I did want to get a, a follow up on that because I think other people could benefit. It's really too. sweet. Yeah, okay, good. it's really sweet. Uh, I've, I've I've got my my pandemic skills on point. <laughs> and actually, Patrick, we'll be wanting your feedback next week because we got a live stream uh, next week about database mesh, not data mesh, not service mesh, but database mesh. Uh, interesting paradigm that's emerging from a speaker mm. who's going to be joining us from China. Um, so we'll have that on Tuesday. Um, but anyway. Plenty of things going on as always. And oh, good. Ankel's getting his glasses on. So you can see. No, I yeah, no, no, <laughs> This is a high risk. going to poke your eye out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On that note, stay safe, everybody. We love you all. 